0: Hi, I'm Gigi McQuarrie.
1: And I'm Kevin Koser. And we host Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. Each week, we look at a different Doctor Who story from Big Finish and share what we love and what we don't. We're looking at everything from the very first stories to David Tennant's most recent adventures. And we hope that you'll join us. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and pretty much wherever you find podcasts.
0: So give us a listen. And remember, keep talking Who. They all say Who. Hello, I am Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them or even collect the hardcover editions or maybe the pinnacle American editions for all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collector's Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, this is Paul McGann and I play the Doctor on Doctor Who. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the paradisical task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. It was either that or describe it as the rapine task, folks. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I didn't want to do that. My name is Tony Witt, and today we have a charmingly paradisical three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert, who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. There's our intermediate-level, also paradisical casual fan, who's seen several episodes but has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. And finally, we have our semi-casual and no longer completely paradisical fan, one who has seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast and this time around. It's the wise and witty Alison Fitch. Say, Hello, Alice.": Alison.
1: Good evening.
0: If you like what you're hearing, though I can't imagine how, please check out our Patreon page patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, Since we know you have so many of them, you've taken to storing them in Fortress Tragen. Just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, the Video Junkyard Podcast, the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, and Stephen Pickering. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr in fact we expect you to tonight we bring you our first installment of something we'd like to call technically target even though it actually it is target (laughs) it is target that's the thing Uh, normally with technically target we would discuss a non-tv story that was novelized in a target-like way whether under the target imprint or not, or one that is an original novel under the target imprint. There's no technically about the imprint this time, though, because this is a target book. In fact, it's the last target book ever of the original run. Hmm. This does not, of course, include the new Target books published by BBC Books of episodes from the new series, which began appearing in the last decade. We will get to those in due course because I think it'll be interesting to read them in story order, but there's no way the entire new series will be published by the time we get there, so we'll just do what they've done. Since it's supposedly set between the Time Warrior and the Dinosaur Invasion, we now bring you our discussion of The Paradise of Death such as it is. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who, The Paradise of Death, adapted by Barry Letts from his radio script that aired on BBC Radio from 82793 to nine 9493, published by Target Books in April 1994. As of this recording in May 2020, this title is currently out of print, but is available as an audiobook, 260 pages. It's rather appropriate that we're recording this on Memorial Day 2020, since we're in essence honoring Barry Letts' memory by reading this book, but yeah, I'd rather find something else to honor him with. I honestly tried to find a source talking about why this story was produced. I really did. Apparently, the main reasons are that the sixth Doctor radio play Slipback in the mid-80s was so successful, and at this point, Doctor Who was well and truly off the air 1993 was also the 30th anniversary of the show, but between this and the Dimensions and Time special, which, thank God, was not novelized, so we don't have to discuss it, <laughs> the BBC seems to have been ill-equipped to celebrate this particular anniversary. Hmm. Let's was the obvious choice to write the story, as it turned out, and Pertwee, Liz Sladen, and Nick Courtney were all available to reprise their roles. There was also some very interesting casting here, including Harold Innocent, who appeared in the McCoy era as Freeth, and who died between the broadcast of Episodes 3 and 4. And no, I'm not going to be snarky and say he died out of shame. Ugh. Wait, who died? Um, the actor who played Freeth.
1: Hmm.
0: Yeah, the effeminate character who's constantly eating.
1: Yeah, oh, I know who, yeah.
0: Yeah, that that actor died between the broadcast of Episodes 3 and 4. Tragen was played by Peter Miles, who will appear as the villain in the next televised story, Invasion of the Dinosaurs, and who had become even more famous the following season by playing an even more villainous character, Nider, in Genesis of the Daleks. Maurice Denham, who played the president, appeared in the first Sixth Doctor story, The Twin Dilemma, poor thing, Anya was played by Jane Slavin, who would go on to appear in many of the Tom Baker Big Finish audios. And finally, we actually have a non-canonical doctor in the story, for once. The actor Trevor Martin. He played the doctor on stage in 1974 in Seven Keys to Doomsday, which was a, a stage play by Terrence Dix. And he would later reprise that role for the audio drama version for Big Finish. For this play, he played several characters, including Kaido... And Jen Hager, which I like to call Jägermeister, because... Oh no. <laughs> this five-part serial originally aired on the BBC AM station Radio 5, but was repeated on the BBC FM station Radio 2 the following April. On that occasion, they accidentally messed up the transmission order of the episodes, and this led to huge amounts of complaints. The BBC took this to mean that they'd underestimated the listening audience size, and so they commissioned a sequel. Probably not the best interpretation of those numbers, to be honest. A third play was planned, but Pertwee died in 1996, the same year the second play was transmitted. We will be covering that second play, sadly, as it also slots into this season, but that's going to be an actual technically target episode because that book is not part of the Target range. It's instead part of the Missing Adventures range produced by Virgin Publishing. Mm -hmm. Speaking of the play's claims that it seamlessly slots in between The Time Warrior and Invasion of the Dinosaurs, it actually says this in the liner notes for the uh, BBC audio. Anyone who has seen that serial and listens to Sarah's first few lines realizes that simply can't be the case. She's even wearing the same outfit for Christ's sake. And speaking of mistakes, Letts includes a lot of callbacks to his own era of the show, including the last season of Tom Baker's era that he executive produced, but he seems to have gotten many of the details wrong. We'll talk about that here in a minute. The opening music for this play, in fact, actually comes from that season, which is just wrong. That's not (laughs) the music that's associated with Pertwee. And we'll talk about all of that. One last thing. The word bastard actually gets used in the radio play. I was keeping an eye out for it in the book. I didn't see it. So I don't know whether you saw it or not, because after a time, I just started skimming. I got to that point.
2: Did <laughs> so You hated it that much. I really did.
1: I don't recall seeing that word. I recall seeing a number of other words I had to Google because apparently I don't have as magnificent of vocabulary as i imagined <laughs> well yeah. but that word i'm familiar with and i did not do not recall seeing
0: yeah i don't think it was there so let's actually edited that out of the book he won't be that careful about his editing next time just Wait, to... why would
1: that be an acceptable term for radio and not print that's the reverse of usual
0: well here's the thing by this point virgin publishing was well into doing the new adventures and the missing adventures and I hope I'm getting these dates right. There had been some controversy in the first few new adventures because they actually used the word fuck. And this didn't sit too well with the BBC. So they came up with the portmanteau cruck to stand in for it. And they used it so often that it actually became more offensive than fuck would have been. <laughs> and I have the feeling that if Barry Letts heard any of this, he may have gone ahead and edited that word out the word bastard out just because he didn't want to get in too much trouble i just searched
1: the pdf and it's not in there nor is cruck assuming that c-r-u-c-k
0: yes and cruck would not be and it wasn't in the original radio play bastard was though so it is notable for being as far as i know and i'm sure someone's going to correct me if i'm wrong The first time that a piece of Doctor Who, anything, has had that sort of swearing in it other than the books.
1: That is actually extremely American, so I'm surprised this happened with a British series to say that the word bastard is too offensive, but have a repeated motif that um, Sarah Jane's going to be uh, dismembered in a highly sexualized way yeah on camera for entertainment yeah <laughs> so, exactly <laughs> like i was actually thinking this was a much more teen book than we'd read so far in the target books yeah in terms of both the uh the sort of winking jokes most of which i found delightful but also like there's a definite horror overtone
0: oh god yeah yeah this is this is definitely not for kids in so the way all the mild the
1: swears are... to, to edit out that that's that's kind of a weird beat
0: This book was definitely not intended for kids in the same way that the original series, well, wasn't, uh, even though it was targeted (laughs) for kids, obviously. And I just realized something. I misspoke myself there because I said that this was the first time that a word like this had been used. And I just realized, I think we've had Bastard come up in the Target book before. Mm -hmm. I can't remember which story it was, but I feel like it's got to be Ian Martyr book.
1: Get mixed up about the hierarchy of swears, because I think of that on the same level as hell and damn, and we've definitely seen some hells and dams.
0: We have. We've even seen a goddammit.
1: <laughs> oh, the yeah. things we have seen. Yes. <laughs> Strong content.
0: Though weirdly enough, we saw that it in a Hartnell story, which was just bizarre. Yeah, because it never would have appeared. In fact, the word damn was kind of verboten at that time. But... Radio is a very different thing, even especially in Britain, because I am now talking about things I don't know anything about. But I do know that I've listened to many BBC radio plays and been really surprised what they get away with. And what they will get away with in the next radio play, because there is something that, um, yeah, something comes up that people are not happy with. It's not fuck. It would be surprising if that were there, but no. In fact, there are two swears, if you call them that. They come up in that play, one mild one, but it's bizarre because it comes from the doctor, who we've never really heard swear before. And the other one is just gratuitous. It's... Well, there's so many things that are gratuitous here. Um, let's do It's like dra- the big
1: tease is, in the future, we're going to hear about two separate swears. Yeah. Stay tuned.
0: Yes, <laughs> well, there's got to be a reason to tune in for that episode. <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and do the dramatic reading of the back cover here because, well, I might as well. I don't want to make you two suffer for it. Uh. It starts with a quote from the story. Apparently, the thigh bone had been bitten clean through. There isn't a creature on Earth capable of doing that. After a skirmish with an alien warrior in the Middle Ages, Sarah Jane Smith's life as a journalist in Croydon seems rather tame. She decides to track down the enigmatic character who took her back in time. With the Doctor, a good story is never far away. Her intuition pays off. The Doctor and Unit are called to investigate a grisly murder at Space World, a futuristic new theme park. Tagging along... Sarah and her new colleague Jeremy soon find themselves facing huge crab like creatures, mind controlling devices, and vicious flesh eating beetles. And those are just the attractions. Yeah. Yeah, this story has plenty of attractions. As opposed
1: to those, those flesh eating beetles that are actually pacifists. They hate to eat your flesh, but <laughs> yeah, everything's got to eat. Exactly.
0: So. First impressions. What were your first impressions of this, apart from the poisoning of the well that I did long before you read it, Dalton?
1: Yeah, I have a feeling
0: that Alice and I liked it better than than, than you.
1: I'm actually very (laughs) surprised, Tony.
0: I can definitely say that is true. (laughs)
1: <laughs> it might just mean that we're other people in the world and therefore like it more than you seem to. It's,
2: it's true. I think that the title in itself is confusing and a bit misleading to me. Um, when I think of paradise, I don't think of something horrible. And so therefore a paradise of death is just like this, this oxymoron in my head of like, what? And then, yeah, reading the back of it, it made me feel like we were going to be in this amusement park longer than we were ah I, I i thought it was actually going to be about an amusement park as opposed to first fifth of the book maybe right and then the rest is all on a completely other planet i don't know i like it more than i get the feeling you do but i still have a lot of misgivings and, and kind of confusion and it, it Seems to pull in a lot of different directions, yeah. So it morphed kind of three different times for me, and I'm like, I don't know how to quite feel about it.
0: Yes, I, and that's actually one of the problems that I have with it. It's not one story; it's three, yeah. And they're three very different stories. Um, Allison, what was your first impression?
1: Well, my first impression was that I thought it was very '90s in a way that nothing else we've read has been. And I look back at the copyright page, and it made so much sense when it said 94 based on a radio play from 93, because even though I could believe it was a 1993 adaptation, I just couldn't believe that the original story was 70s. And in fact, it was not. It was really a very different style than we've read in Target. It was very sort of Douglas Adams, Terry Pratchett kind of humor adventure, humorous adventure style, which I actually find delightful. And this is shameful. I don't think I've ever read any Douglas Adams, maybe half a Discworld book, but in the early 90s read some other writers in that genre with that style. And it was so fresh and invigorating, exciting to me at the time that I went back and forth between finding it this sort of delightful walk down memory lane about something that style I'd found so fresh and exciting at the time. And then also critiquing my youthful taste (laughs) and finding it sometimes kind of like eating a bowl of salt and pepper and cayenne (laughs) (laughs) well yeah it's so self-consciously humorous and spiced that um i i was both reading it as a novel and then sort of reading it picturing the bedspread i had at the age of 13 and how how this would have been so incredibly awesome at the time and then how i would have been overestimating it at the time
0: Ah uh, yes. Uh for me it was how did you say salt pepper cayenne with a uh chaser vinegar.
1: Just because... the seasonings, so yes. Yeah. That, that was one of my impression early on. It actually it, it it grew much more substantial as it went. Okay. All and right. I just mean the language there.
0: Hmm. all right.
1: Just the the number of sort of quips and takes per square. Right?
0: Oh, that's true because Let's is trying very very hard to inject humor into this and uh that actually comes up in one of the reviews that we'll be reading from goodreads they had
1: a lot of fun and way too much
0: yeah and imagine stretching the story out over five weeks and getting it a half hour at a time
1: well, considering it's the longest thing we've read other than uh, Barbara Kisses Guy Fawkes, which was a completely original story, I found it very easy to believe that right. it was stretched out over five weeks. This was, yeah. I don't, I'm sorry, I don't remember the name. What, what was that? I, I think oh. that's
2: what it's called. <laughs> Barbara, Barbara Kisses Guy Fawkes. Barbara Kisses Guy Fawkes. <laughs> Yeah, it
0: doesn't matter what it's actually called. That's what it's going to be called on this show from now on. Was
1: it uh, a virgin book?
0: It was. It was A Virgin Missing Adventure. And now I can't remember the title.
1: (laughs) To those listening, we are recording a day later than planned because I looked at the page links and thought I would just need an extra couple of hours. (laughs) And I For a person with so much formal education, not a fast reader. (laughs) And so we are starting 24 hours after schedule because I'm like, okay, this is going to take a while (laughs) (laughs) once I actually got into it. I felt the same way,
0: but for different reasons. Because... (laughs) I was checking the page count like every 10 minutes saying, oh my God, please. Not PDF to mention, was
1: 260. And normally the PDF versions come in between 90 and 150.
0: Yeah, this one is, I think this one is a straightforward shot for shot of the pages of the original two. Unlike the targets, which tend to be, you know, uh, OCR.
1: I don't think so. There are like, maybe two or three, I think, OCR kind of errors in there. I mean, it was very, not unreadable, but things that seemed like OCR errors.
0: Oh, that's right, because Tragen's name gets butchered a couple of times. Yes,
1: it well, it's like Regan oh. a couple of times. and Yeah, a couple <laughs> of other things like that that um, indicated it's OCR. And just yeah. Visually, it looks like the other PDFs.
0: I remember that Freeth was given his teeth once, and that seemed very appropriate.
1: <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> so... Where do we start with this? Well, first of all...
1: You're, how about your hatred?
0: No, no. It's bubbling up. <laughs> no, no. No, no. I don't want to start there. Like
2: Dragon's want, Face.
0: Yeah, exactly. That's like some monstrous version of living acne. No, I'd rather give our listeners something to look forward to. <laughs> well, I, I think they're probably going to be more interested in hearing why you liked wit. it.
1: Now, seriously,
0: I... I've been getting, as soon as I told people I was reading this for this podcast, it was almost universally, oh, this should be an interesting one. And I think what's going to be surprising to everybody, because it's surprising to me, is that you enjoyed it so much. So I do want to start with how well Let's captures the spirit of the era that he produced, if not the letter of it. Because
1: the, the story is supposed to... Or the spirit of the place in the continuity where it would have where he's retroactively inserting it the story
0: is supposed to be set in
1: the 70s are you asking if he captures a 70s spirit or a 1993 spirit
0: oh it captures 1993 christ almighty you you pointed that out well let's start there then you said that this reminded you of the 90s more than anything else we've read in what ways
1: well, like I said, the style and, oh goodness, I think the thing I was reading around that time was uh, Stephen Lawhead, who's actually an American author, but he'd spent 15 years in Oxford at that point. So oh, yeah. that particular style of adventure humor and quippiness, which like I said, I actually associate with, a, with coming of age reading. Like I said, 93, 94, I'm talking about being 13 and 14 reading this. So remember, I loved most of Donald Cotton's books that we read. Right. Uh, Not so much Deadwood, but he does a lot of this, it's not exactly the same mode of humor, but he does a lot of of humor compared to uh, some of the other authors we read in terms of proportion. So I actually loved most of the first part of it. And actually I really liked most of it until the end where I thought all the interesting questions that had been raised and the interesting parallels that had been drawn were wrapped up far too neatly. Yeah. In a way that was uh, negative 90s. Yeah. Um, But overall, even though I talk about how the style was overdone, it's vastly entertaining, I thought. And so, (laughs) yes, it's a little much, but it was a perfect holiday weekend mode oh god okay
2: yeah the uh the begin the beginning third in the amusement park was very goosebumps for me uh <laughs> which was what i was reading when this was coming out when it was being produced uh so that like we we're saying this feels very 90s that definitely was what i was getting from that first bit right it was goosebumps
0: <laughs> oh wow uh, i should which point I out. Love. <laughs> yeah i should point out listeners even though you probably already know this I'm significantly older than Allison and Dalton, <laughs> so uh, for them, childhood would have been childhood and teen years would have been the '90s, and for me, it was uh, um, '80s. But yeah, I, I, I agree that there's something very bumps-y about all of those scenes set in space world. But then they get jettisoned very quickly for well, the and- second story of the three.
1: In terms of how perception changes based on when you know the story was produced, whatever the the medium of the story is, I've made far too many references in the past about how Gene Roddenberry supposedly is the one who ruined the first season of Star Trek Next Generation. But I hadn't actually seen any of those episodes in many years. And uh, I watched Picard and then went back and watched all the Borg episodes. And I just started watching it at the beginning because I realized I'd never seen part one of the pilot Mm. And it was so bad, at first. <laughs> so much worse than I recalled. But what I didn't remember, because the first time I saw them was probably when they were first in syndication, once again, around 90, you know, 92 or so, and the show had been on for three or four years. Right. But what I did not remember at the time is that those first few episodes that are so bad are basically just original st- series Star Trek scripts. I mean, they're new scripts, but in exactly the same style, just with different characters. Yep. It was innovative 20 years before, but it was just dead stinking roadkill by 1987. (laughs) And I got to the second season premiere. That's when they introduce Guinan, uh, Worf, and Riker go see New Barbers. You know, the, the, the <laughs> writing is so much more sophisticated and modern just in 1988 than it was in 87. Well, by the time Voyager was on the air for the beginning of Voyager, like 96 or so that came on, they were doing the kind of stuff that Next Generation had been doing eight years earlier, and it seemed tired. Mm-hmm. So, this seems very fun and fresh for when it was written. If you handed me a novel published today like this, I would find it very tired.
0: Okay. I so, I that.
1: would say my, my reading of the copyright page definitely affected my enjoyment both positively and negatively. Mm-hmm. And in a very different way than I might expect it to affect you because of your greater maturity when it first came out. Well, I don't know about greater (laughs) maturity. (laughs) Thank you for that. Well, no, but like, what were you, like early 20s when when this came out? Yes, but I didn't
0: actually listen to it until, oh God, when did I finally get around to listening to this? 1999, so I would have been just on the verge of 30.
1: But things that came out in 2003, I have a much more skeptical eye of. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's that sort of, even if I didn't see them in 2003.
0: Okay. I can see that. Dalton, you said that you had some problems towards the end too, because Allison said that she felt that some of the more interesting questions had been wrapped up too quickly. Let's tackle those.
2: Yeah. Just kind of the issue we've had with some of the other books, just the ending seems so quick. Yep. Like, we're in the middle of the arena, and then, like two pages later, they're just in the TARDIS. Goodbye. <laughs> and it's like, what? It just feels like there's this talk of this society and and the capitalism and the people being addicted to these machines and the feelings that they get but there's just no wrap-up. There's no feeling that there's any closure of any of that. It's just like, all right, well, we got rid of these two bad guys, and now the president's back with his magical uh, warrior lady. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) God. Servant, and they'll know how to deal with this, so bye. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It, It just is like, what? Okay.
0: Yeah, it is really fast. You're you're right, because the very last scene follows on directly from that bit in the arena. And we don't even know what the president could have done or will do. His main heir to the company is dead now, whether he's going to institute reforms or whether he's just going to die and leave everything to Anya to look over. And of course, since the story is out of production order, we will never hear about Paracon ever again, which I find to be a mercy. But yeah, there's no way of knowing it. All these questions just get really
1: chopped at the very end. So I actually liked the story overall, which is why I was disappointed towards the end, because I feel like yeah. a lot of the, or several of the recent stories, well, especially during the Pertwee era, have dealt with very obvious parallels Two different historic empires. Lots mm-hmm. of British Empire and other European empires, lots of Roman Empire and this one, lots of Soviet Empire and the last Malcolm Hulk we read. And I actually love those stories. And even when I think the take is messed up or wrong, I I, I like the attempt. Right. And here I thought they had a really interesting sort of Roman Empire in space with once again, parallels to the American Empire and sort of the modern British Commonwealth of these extractive relationships with these different outlying worlds to which they are allegedly bringing commerce, but then once they have been farmed into dust bowls, then they're extracting the physical bodies of the people yeah and yeah. Uh, and the sort of Roman bread and circus is motif for I think they actually mention bread and circuses, circuses yeah, We're in the yeah. central part of the empire they they have all these resources all these all this wealth that is brought in by the resources yeah and probably the citizenry there doesn't understand where it's actually coming from mm-hmm and who do they think built this empire? I did not understand this concept at the end where the president, who presides over the opening of all of the gladiatorial game seems to suddenly become aware that maybe that's bad, and yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Exactly.
1: <laughs> and maybe his son's taken things a little far, and ergo, what like that? That was what was so kind of disappointing to me at the end because mm-hmm. I thought the implication was that the theme park on Earth was that Earth would be the next planet which they offered resources and actually it was entertainment resources for in exchange for being able to, I thought they are going to want to farm rapine on Earth and then of course they'll use up all the agricultural resources of the ecosystem mm-hmm. and then they'll yeah. start eating the earthlings is, yeah. is how, how I thought it was going to work. I don't know if they've dropped that plan or not by the end, and it seems kind of important to our heroes <laughs> whether yes. or not yeah. that plan's going to move forward. If Paracon is going to stop doing that, they're going to die unless they make other plans. Like, but I, it, It's because an interesting situation was built up that I felt the end was more of a it seemed like a situation of running out of pages mm-hmm. or ink or some other resource in the publication process
0: Well, probably if he hadn't spent so much damn time building up anya as this super warrior with all all those damn italics, then he would have had enough room to do something like that unfortunately no
1: well, I did like the italics as a way to set off that this is a different, this is either a, a memory or an inner monologue of hers. Oh, you know, but it, it does not so like the, In terms of typesetting. It does came it,
2: out of nowhere,
1: though. Yes. yes. If yeah.
2: there would have been instances of that earlier on, you know, bits from Freeth's perspective or even from Sarah Jane's perspective, something else to kind of carry that through.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But the fact that we only get it from her, is like,
1: eh. Yeah, exactly. Well, there were actually some really interesting ideas in there, but then it slipped into the worst of the 90s, which is that one person sees that things are wrong and goes on a personal journey where she becomes the hero of a different ethnic group and their leader just by wandering in one day and meeting a Jedi. Oh. And, mm-hmm. but... While she's their leader, she also was able to go back and infiltrate her former society, which has extremely advanced information technology. She was able to fabricate an identity and get the plummest service job ever while she continues to actually rule these villages where they might kill her if she kills the wrong animal. It was just the the sort of the weird (laughs) fusion of... This is usually presented as like white savior... Narrative yes. where you have yeah. Tom Cruise go be a which I'm gonna call it, uh samurai. <laughs> I was going to say a samurai, but yes. Or <laughs> uh, it's hard to make a movie like this anymore. Fortunately, but you know, sort of a dance with wolves kind of motif where you have someone from the same group as the producers and financiers of the film. <laughs> yes, <laughs> going, yes, yes, going to a different culture and noticing that things are wrong in the world or saving them and being able to do it yes
0: i'm thinking of a particular movie that was based on a book right now and for some reason it's completely escaping me but hillary duff was in that in the <laughs> 90s
1: whom does she save she
0: saves inner city kids by becoming a teacher in the inner city
1: yes there's a whole genre of films like this yes. oh yes. Hillary,
2: hillary swank
0: Hillary Swank,
2: not
1: Hillary oh, Duff. Okay. Like, <laughs> Duff. I was like, Hillary
2: Duff. Um, <laughs> well, i
1: like, well, you know, I think she's in her 30s. So Hillary Swank, she, there she we go. I'm going to be cast as a teacher now. <laughs> oh, but, God. Yes. What
0: was the name of that? What was the. Uh, obviously, I can't remember it because I can't Freedom remember her Writers. damn name. Uh, Freedom, Freedom Riders. Writers. Yeah, yes. so
1: then for sort of that, there's Dangerous Minds. Oh, and,
0: God, yeah. And that whole um, subgenre of that. And yeah, it taps into that when. Really, very few of the Pertwee-era stories have any characters like that. I mean, you could probably say Professor Sondergaard from The Mutants kind of counts as that, but that whole story is about Empire anyway.
1: I have three different thoughts going, so I'm going to follow one and then I'll track back. Mm -hmm. Uh, I liked the idea of a person who was very comfortable and productive in this society having this moment of seeing the other side of the looking glass Mm -hmm. and choosing to find out what the outside world outside of that sort of bubble of their built-up areas is like. Yeah. And the idea of someone who has lived this life exclusively in very tight social safety net, laboratories, all very professional, cared for, having to learn wilderness survival as a concept. Mm -hmm. But it was more like she went to, speaking of the 90s, one of those corporate retreat centers where you, uh, (laughs) in accounting, does a ropes course. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Only this time, like I said, there's a Jedi. Uh, So it was the stuff after that that I thought just kind of all went to hell.
0: Come to think of it, MTV when they did The Real World in London, they had the cast do exactly that, and that was in the 90s. So, yeah, that sounds about
1: right. And at a ropes course, you don't have to learn how to fillet a lizard and that sort of thing to survive, but... It was it was way 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 too easy for her to do all of the things that she did to have the personal spiritual journey to become the leader of the Ewoks, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then to remain their leader, although they could kill her if she messes up. While she goes and takes a day job, at a high level infiltration where apparently their security doesn't involve screening the staff. Right. But once again interesting ideas some best of the 90s ideas that went into some worst of the 90s execution mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> yeah i also wondered how it is that this extremely technically advanced civilization could not just fly over the green area and yes or
1: track her car when she commutes to and from <laughs> yeah yeah but yeah. then has to walk in the rest of the way
0: right that would have been
1: too easy, obviously. <laughs> well, I actually understand the landing one place, hiking to another. It's the fact that they don't pay attention to vehicles that cross the desert when the only vehicles that are supposed to cross the desert are supposed to be going to, the to and from Running Man. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Which I checked came out in 1987 and is a significant influence on this work of fiction. Yeah.
2: Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely.
1: I mean, it's not like a hole in the plot. It's a thing in the plot that I think is silly and I don't like but there was so much cleverness in the story in the first half that I thought the second half squandered a lot of that goodwill.
0: Yeah, this is true. In fact, I remember when I first heard this, I was rather excited by the first couple episodes, and then it started changing and becoming a very different story as it went, so that It's one story in the first two episodes, it's another story in the second two episodes, and then the fifth episode gives us a completely different one.
1: And one of the things that I found more interesting is so much more relevant today, even than when this story was written, was the idea of society where you don't need that many people to work. Mm-hmm. and we yeah. are experiencing an acceleration of this realization in the last few months where it doesn't actually take that many people to run the agricultural sector, mm-hmm. you know, manufacturing. So much labor can be done from home, and it's more and more computerized all the time. That's knowledge work, et cetera. Not that we're all out of a job quite yet, but even though we've been talking about for years how that's coming, we see now how much more quickly it's coming, and it's, it's very interesting to talk about, you know, what if you have a society where people could definitely choose to sit around and do young VR head all day, but you yeah. could also choose to work. But does that mean there's a lot of competition for those few jobs or there aren't very many people who want to do it? How does that affect a person psychologically? That's interesting stuff and more relevant all the time. And then it just was, you know, forgotten about.
0: Yeah. And that's not what Let's is interested in, apparently. He's more interested in Anya and her journey because he gives a lot of time to it, even in the radio version where we only get it, we get it reported in secondhand, which is fine. It's meant to be a parallel to the Doctor's own spiritual journey because we've heard of the Pertwee Doctor, the third Doctor, talking about his mentor who lived higher up the mountain, and taught him ways and such. And that's going to come up again in Pertwee's last season. And I think that's Let's trying to tie into it. The only problem is the Doctor's story. Uh, the Doctor's story is so much more interesting than Anya's. It really is.
1: This well, is we're just... invested in the Doctor, and this is a guest of the week. Yeah. And
0: she doesn't end up being or doing anything really at the very end. Except going back to the president and saying, by the way, <laughs> here's a recording that just happened to be in the equivalent of the public library, showing people being grinded into fertilizer. And by the way, Soylent Green is people. It's like, oh, God. Oh, God. So, I mean, Sarah's the one who's worried throughout the whole book about thinking and saying cliches. Yes,
2: well, <laughs> I thought I loved that, actually. That and her being in love, which is... Oh, gone. God. <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> just, <laughs> Dalton
1: will now share with us about icky. Things, <laughs>
2: <Dalton>. <laughs> I just—this is only the second story I've had her in, and already I'm like, this is not. No, this isn't right. No, it isn't. These
1: are all my lines. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like immediately, no, just just no, no. Yeah yeah it was it was nice in the beginning the the feeling of her feeling like something is missing like there's something and then she's like oh i missed the doctor that i was okay with it's like yeah you missed this this person that took you on an adventure that mm-hmm. makes sense but her like falling head over heels for this person she's known for a couple of hours and then <laughs> going out of her way to put herself in danger to try to save
0: him yes and all because yeah. he has a small butt yes a small butt <laughs> because
1: she's
0: pre- actually <laughs> she prefers,
1: small <laughs> well, <laughs> she, prefers
0: <laughs> she prefers small bums yeah it's like, she uh, likes uh, small bums and she cannot lie <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> i like big Speaking of the
1: 90s, yes. It is appropriate that she try to save the lives of people in mortal danger in the story. But yes, the emotional attachment did seem quite sudden. Well,
0: especially to the point of berating the doctor and saying, you wouldn't let me stay with him and he died. No one deserves to die alone. And the doctor actually admitting, you're right, I was wrong. When that's not what happens in the book. That happens in the radio play. It should have because Let's got it fucking wrong. In the radio play, the doctor says, well, I know you want to stay with him, but they're having this dinner in our honor. You really should come. It's not healthy for you to stay here and worry, which sounds perfectly fine. And they go. And then the attack happens and all that happens. And when they come back, and it's a very moving scene in the radio play, as a matter of fact, they come back to discover that Waldo has already died. Which of course leads everybody to ask where's Waldo? I'm sorry. I had uh... to I had to get it out of my system because And I yet can't...
1: I feel like let's display some restraint by not putting that in till like page two hundred and ten or so
0: where But it is there. Yeah. It is there, which is well, it's not called Where's Waldo in Britain as it turns out, but that's I can't remember it's called Where's I think he's named Wally. Where's Wally? It's not Waldo. But when they go back they find that Waldo has died already. And that's when Sarah breaks down and says, you should have let me stay with him. No one should die alone because he did die alone. Captain Bradley? Waldo?
2: Is he getting worse?
0: I'm afraid he's
1: gone. Oh no, we should never have left him. There was nothing any of us could do. He just, he just
0: went to sleep, Sarah.
1: I wanted to stay with him and you wouldn't let me we just went away and left
2: him we let him die alone
0: you were right
1: I was wrong
2: nobody should die alone nobody
0: he doesn't die alone in this version because she goes back and holds his hand while he dies so no it wasn't just you Allison it was Let's making a big ol' mistake in a book that's full of big old mistakes I'm sorry I'm pulling back now breathe 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 okay there we
1: go i'd like to poke the wound further what do you think is angering you at such a profound level about this because i don't feel like we've quite reached the source of it yet
0: Okay, you've essentially experienced all of the Pertwee era at this point, except for the last, let's see, one, two, three, four. I believe we've only got four more stories with the Pertwee Doctor, including the the other radio drama, but I'm trying not to count that because Jesus God. Uh, We don't have that much left of him and his era, so you get a sense of the flavor of the era, the style of it, the sort of stories that were important to it all of the references that let's makes in the story you probably are able to get
1: yes although i did wonder if he was this is only the second story sarah story that we've read we've only one read one canonical 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 let's call the whole thing off (laughs) so far i i did wonder if he was using characterization that would have been ahead of itself in the slot he's putting it in in the continuity. Partially. But would make sense when you were reading it in 1993.
0: I will tell you the biggest problem that longtime fans have with this story. Actually as soon as I remind you of this, Allison, you'll say, oh yeah, and probably Dalton too because I think you've also seen Tom Baker's last story. The end of episode one has the third Doctor falling from a great height and appearing to have died from it. We find out that he escapes this fate through Bone relaxation.
1: <laughs> I like now, that the uh, coroner It's not a real thing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and you funny. have to admit,
0: that's kind of funny because later on we also get the brigadier saying, oh God, reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. Come on, doctor. And the doctor says, I admit, that's a nonsense phrase and so is this one. <laughs> it's <laughs> better than trying to explain it to you in terms that you really wouldn't understand because that's a purely trope. Obviously, he didn't like techno babble, so he came up with that phrase. But the dying from falling from a great height is exactly what happens to the fourth doctor at the end of Legopolis. Which has led one critic, Robert Smith, with a question mark. He legally changed his name to have a question mark at the end of it. It led led Robert Smith to say, that's a neat trick with the bone relaxation. That really would have come in handy when the fourth doctor fell off something from a great height and died. It's like, yeah. And this is the worst part. Barry Letts executive produced the season in which Tom Baker dies from falling from (laughs) a great height.
1: Well, maybe he regretted it.
0: <laughs> maybe. I don't know. I mean he didn't have that much of a say in it. But it... It's
1: like his own personal atonement. <laughs> oh no. That's just he it though. And rewrite what happened. Well to he save everyone.
0: <laughs> he wouldn't have had that much of a day to day I mean, it would have been like Roddenberry in season three of Star Trek. He wouldn't have had as much of a hands on day to day input as he did before and in fact that actually is the case but it seems like barry lets is half remembering things from 20 years previously and also from 10 years previously and is getting them wrong and getting them wrong in such a way that sarah jane smith acts a lot more like joe grant at times especially when it comes to the you know getting all oh god what was that terrible phrase that they used for sexual arousal who be the goobies or whatever it was Oh, God. Nothing says bad sci-fi like trying to come up with your own Argo. Unless, of course, you're Anthony Burgess, in which case you should do it all the time. It's in chapter... It's when they go... Sliggy-hoo. Sliggy-hoo. Yeah, getting all sliggy-hoo. And drinking themselves blat. Which sounds absolutely fruity. It's like, oh my fucking God. It's it, uh, interesting that Alan should have pointed out Douglas Adams. Because Douglas Adams makes fun of that sort of thing in Hitchhiker's Guides of the Galaxy. And this is written, what, 10 years later? And it's doing it. I was like, oh, oh, my God. But she's getting all slicky who over Waldo. Waldo Rudley, who, who makes me think of Zat Branigan from Futurama. <laughs>
1: yes. Yes, yeah. I can see yes. that. She's a beautiful ship, all right. Shapely, seductive. I'm going to fly her brains out.
0: Yeah, except he's more competent, except for the fact that he dies, of course.
1: I thought he was a perfectly acceptable love interest. It's just the extremity of the emotional investment was out of proportion to the situation, it felt.
0: Very much, yes. It's as if Let's was remembering that Joe Grant almost got married off to a Thal, and then did get married off to somebody who looked like a Thal, <laughs> and it's the wrong character. It's a character that he actually had some real input into creating. And Sarah Jane, to me in this, and to many others, if you read some of the commentary on the story, feels absolutely wrong. So yeah, that's one of the reasons why I hate this story.
1: Well, and I'm not sure she's ever called Sarah Jane in the book. I think she's always called Sarah.
0: Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly.
1: Which I thought was interesting and I thought might have some significance that you could illuminate. It does.
0: Sarah Jane moves on from being called Sarah Jane early on in the Tom Baker era because it starts getting shortened to Sarah. New producer, so I guess he decided uh, let's not call her Sarah Jane anymore. To the point that when the 10th Doctor appears on Sarah Jane Adventures and calls her Sarah, one of the young teenagers says, "Um, she actually doesn't like being called Sarah. And the Doctor says, Well, she always let me call her Sarah. Sarah. Sarah Jane. She doesn't like being called Sarah. She does by name, and it's true. Pertwee calls her Sarah Jane. Tom Baker calls her Sarah. That's the big difference. Here, she's called Sarah because that's where we are in the '90s with that character. And strangely enough, let's is. He seems to have brought this character up to the 90s, even though the story is set ostensibly either at the time that Time Warrior was aired, which is 1974, or when the story is set, which is, God help us with unit dating, it's somewhere between 1977 and 1980. And there's no way that it could be. Especially, and this is something that really struck me this time, when they talk about the ticket prices for Space World... I don't know if you caught this.
1: I don't remember what they actually were.
0: It's
2: like it's like thirty-seven or something.
0: Yeah, twenty pounds per head. Yeah, twenty pounds per head. Now thirty-seven dollars. That sounds like a nineteen-nineties era amusement park price for something that's Disney-esque, kind of. Because oh my God, Let's has a thing for Disney too. Oh, all the references to Mickey Mouse and Pluto. Just I. Yeah, I'm surprised I never stopped throwing up. Terrible. But I looked it up. Disneyland prices in 1974 $4.50, $4.50 per person, which would have been roughly £3.50, somewhere around there. So, no, £20 per ticket is outrageous. So, there's no way this is 1974. Also all the references to VR, because even though we've kind of outgrown the idea of VR by now, even though it's coming back with the Oculus Rift and such, it was a big obsession in 1993 and 94 and well into the 90s. Just, it really dates the story, but not for the 70s, for the 90s. There's very little of the story that makes you think it could be set in the 70s.
1: I think that's the first time that I looked back at the copyright page when they were talking about the different VR interfaces. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's also the year the Jurassic Park movie came out. I do not remember when the novel came out.
0: Jurassic Park. Oh, jeez. I should know this. I really should.
1: But it's all part of the the froth of the era.
0: Yeah. Yeah, the froth, indeed.
1: And not of 20 years earlier.
0: Yeah, the bubbly foam that comes up when you're vomiting. Yes, it's definitely the froth of the era. Oh, Jesus, Lord. What did we think of the Doctor's characterization? Does Let's Get the Doctor Right? That was a long pause. <laughs> I feel
2: like I focused so much on the other things that were happening, and maybe there really wasn't a lot of the Doctor in the story. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't feel like he's there for a lot of it.
0: Yeah, and you're right. He's not. He's either dead or <laughs> he's on his way. <laughs> Yeah, it does have that feeling that it's not very doctor-centric in the way that stories of that era actually were. No.
1: Well, and what it did make sense in terms of where it was slotted in the continuity is that, what's the last time we read? The Time Warrior? Yeah. She's not the companion yet in both of these stories. Exactly. In a way that I actually thought worked in that part of the continuity. So they have largely separate adventures in both stories. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I actually was amused by the or the early on scenario where she's interviewing him. She wants to be a real journalist. She's working for kind of a crappy magazine, but Thames breaks. And then he realizes halfway through the interview that this is an interview and not him <laughs> recruiting <Right. laughs> friends. And I thought that was kind of funny. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, there's a lot more development of her than the doctor, but I didn't think his characterization was especially good or especially bad. It's just they're mostly separated from the story.
0: Yeah, exactly. It's, she's not really a companion in this in the same way that she will become later on. In fact, people have made this argument that she doesn't truly become a companion until the end of the next story, when he invites her to go off on a trip in the TARDIS. And that's when she starts traveling with him, which is the traditional definition of a companion. But by that token, Liz was never a companion, and Joe Grant only became a companion maybe slightly into her third season, so that doesn't quite work either. It's, she doesn't feel like a companion in this, because they are separated for most of the time.
2: Yeah. Jeremy's the and, companion
1: to her.
0: Oh yes! yes. <laughs> oh, do we yes. have to the talk Yes, the Brigadier about...
1: is a Doctor's companion, and Jeremy is Sarah Jane's
0: companion. Is that oh well, would you mind if we talked about Brigadier being the Doctor's companion first? Because I want to put off talking about Jeremy as much as I can. Oh God! Yeah,
1: I actually thought it was some of the most entertaining characterization of the Brigadier we've ever had. Oh really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So we had a mirror scene in here that was extremely, it was about 30 pages in. I got some idea that he's trying to rewrite different elements of stories. Maybe he wished he turned out differently because we have the scene basically from panoramic chemicals in here. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, wherein the brigadier is trying to, trying to give the business to the head or who seems to the person who seems to be the head of the evil corporation Right. And that person, who will later be revealed to not be the one in charge, has some sort of documentation or connection with Hire's Up. And he says, yeah, go ahead, call the prime minister, call the UN, call my boss, call whomever. You can't shut us down. Mm-hmm. They're very parallel scenes with the brigadier trying to bluff and bluster his way through, even though he knows he doesn't have anything. Right, And I thought that actually was, was rendered pretty well in this version, in both versions. Mm-hmm. Because the uh, the brigadier written flatly is just sort of a blundering jackass of a bureaucrat. <laughs> yeah, and, I, and that that becomes tiresome very quickly. And we have him uh, have a little more fun in this story.
0: I agree. <laughs> Nicholas Courtney gets a lot to do. I mean, he gets that scene where he's doing the VR thing and he looks down and he sees his toenails are painted, which is just hilarious. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. 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 We also learn a lot more about him, which is really quite nice because you don't get a lot of his background in the series at all. No,
1: yeah, this is more than we've read about him and all the others combined, it felt like.
0: Yeah, this is the norm for books written in the 90s about these characters. You get a lot more of their interior life. So Let's is, again, writing for the era. Now, that being said, it's not quite clear how... Sarah's characterization really works with everything else that we know about her. So her characterization's pretty off. The brigadier's characterization spot on. In fact, he's a much more, as you said, Allison. he's much more capable in the story.
1: But see, I didn't know that her characterization was off because I've only read one story with her so far. Right. So it kind of it, read to me like everything that Letts had maybe wanted to explore about Sarah Jane and the brigadier earlier and was now having an opportunity to do. I didn't realize that it was a mischaracterization of her.
0: Uh, Not so much a mischaracterization as just, it's a different characterization. Remember, this is still considered part of the extended universe. And it's not really considered a canonical story, except for the fact that it was actually broadcast with the original cast. And that tends to get people riled up and they say, oh, well, if that's the case, then yeah. It's like, well, that's not the case. So no. But it's problematic, to say the least. Now, the Brigadier comes off well, obviously. His characterization here, and I will say this, his characterization is at odds with what we find out about him in other books written around the same time in the 90s. So I think that may have been a problem that people also had... With this particular story at the time. I know that a lot of it is just that let's seem to get so much horribly wrong. And one of the things he got wrong was Jeremy FitzOliver. <sighs> I've been specifically requested by listeners of the podcast for us to discuss Jeremy fing FitzOliver.
1: <laughs> I have something positive to say. All right. I thought it was very funny when he and the brigadier were bonding over their Lord of the Flies boarding school. Sarah <laughs> yes. Jane refers to it. Yes. The, recently restore, the recently established Old Boys Network at the end. She says it sounds like, what is it, a cross between a prison camp and a kindergarten. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: oh, Lord. Well, there's, there's the positive thing then. Dalton, do you have positive things to say about Jeremy?
2: no not really he just (laughs) seems (laughs) he just seems to be kind of there and bumbling and someone since the doctor was paired off with (laughs) with the brigadier it seemed like they needed somebody for sarah jane to have be her yeah her (laughs) her companion so he just it was like oh we we need somebody else here so i'm just relieved uh, he
1: wasn't the love interest i was yeah. afraid uh, yeah. the oh, god. Come around in the end to his charms or something he, he's <laughs> less
0: he's less the romeo to her juliet as the lenny to her george <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah there's where's there's the bit where he, he what does he call himself oh god what does he call himself investigative reporter yeah, no what? well no at the at it's towards the end where they're they're talking about how he's he's basically in the way um, oh, dog's oh, body. Yes, dog's
1: yes. body. give things like dog's Google, body. They use the term like three times on that page.
2: I, I get that. I see that. It, he is. Yes, he <laughs> he's the, the dog's, dog's body.
1: body.
0: <laughs> he's 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 there. So yeah, he's there to serve and to serve a plot function, essentially, but not a very good plot function. Just to, no. If you've got to have a story where you have the Doctor and the Brigadier and a companion, then you need some good pairings there. And the good pairing would have been Doctor and Sarah, but the plot doesn't allow for that. So we get the Doctor and the Brigadier and Sarah and Jeremy. <sighs> we will see Jeremy Fitzoliver again, unfortunately. He's in the sequel.
1: I thought it was an amusing foil at first, a sort of a useless clothes horse. Oh, to, God, yeah. uh, only is where he is because of connections. And yet he's not overtly trying to be a dick. Uh-uh. just has, you know, he's sort of a friendly, wealthy puppy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> has no idea how inept he is. It's, it was kind of yeah. funny.
0: It allows Sarah to insult him in her head. And then insult herself for using cliches because, oh my God, does that trope get tired. Oh. I'm what? Sarah constantly thinking about how often she uses cliches.
1: I like the end where she was horrified. She seems to feel in cliches.
0: Oh my God. Yeah. I've, that...
1: Had, I've had that feeling before. <laughs> But
0: isn't it revelatory? My to experience find out?
1: right now is so bracingly Freudian, it's boring. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. It's just like, oh God, well, this is not exactly where we wanted this character to come out the other side, but there you go. We also get a book that is full of food.
1: Yes, I am yeah. totally ready to hear everyone's thoughts on Freeth eating.
0: Well, not just Freeth that's the problem if we were only free eating then we could say all
1: right we get it he's fat but but not just fat there's a lot more texture to it than that
0: all right in what sense
1: okay so to my shame i have a screenshot of the opening lines here a well-rounded hand daintily selected a violet-flavored chocolate cream as smooth and as plump as itself and conveyed it carefully to a pair of voluptuously cushioned lips. A sigh was mingled with a slight smacking sound as the confection met its end. Yeah. It's uh, similar to... Oh, once again, speaking of this era or so, uh, remember Ursula the sea witch eating the shrimps and The Little Mermaid?
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. In my day, we had fantastical feasts when I lived in the palace. And now look at me, wasted away to practically nothing.
1: She's not just fat, she's smooth in a way that's both extremely not smooth and vulgar, but does actually have a smooth charm. Mm -hmm. And I was also thinking about different characterizations people have done of the kingpin over the years, Wilson Fisk, of someone who is, Mm -hmm. on the one hand vile, on the other hand, very smooth and well-dressed as well. So going back and forth between the sort of smoothness and delicacy, and then he's often eating in a rather disgusting way and picking his teeth, I thought was a good sort of menacing air. But we don't need to be told that he's heavy every single time. Like I, I liked the portrayal of the actions of how he went back and forth between being very refined and yet at the same time, it's disgusting and predatory. And he likes the idea of his food being dissolved alive and his stomach acids. Yeah. But you don't have to tell us every time, oh, he's heavy, he's fat. That means he's gross and evil. Like that was... yeah. Yeah, it's dousing very lip, dousing the Lillian lipids.
0: It's very yes, <laughs> it's it's very slapdash characterization or character building, I should say, which is a shame because this is Let's his own character and it's not written well. That's the it's difficult. too many
1: times for there not to be more payoff. Right? Yeah, like three to four would have been a little much, but understandable. But it's like ten
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and then he ends up. Being eaten to death, which is his just desserts, as a later doctor will quip in a story. I was actually referring, though, to all the other times we get food in the story, because there's a lot of eating going on in the story.
1: I thought at first it was supposed to be a contrast to him, because the first time that we see Sarah Jane, we're told she's having, um, thinking of how times have changed, she feels virtuous because she's having orange juice with whole wheat bread and low-fat vegetable, vegetable marge yes. um, for health and self discipline. And, of course, today we're horrified that someone's eating margarine instead of real butter. Right.
0: And that's the thing. That's also not a concern of the 70s. That's a concern of 1993 specifically.
1: But the thing that I did like about, I, I was kind of annoyed at the time when you sort of referred to, oh, she's constantly watching her figure as any self-disciplined young woman should be. But I did like that as a somewhat impoverished writer, she is so ecstatic that there's good food at the PR event. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh, there's smoked salmon and the wine's not bad either. That worked for me as characterization. Uh, what did you think, Tony, of the uh, sexual souffle?
0: Oh, God. Which sexual souffle are we talking about?
1: Be brief, Tragen, said Chairman Freese. I have an eager young souffle lying in front of me, trembling in anticipation of ravishment by my fork.
0: I have an eager young souffle in front of me, trembling in anticipation of ravishment by my fork.
1: His voice was thick with desire. Uh, then they conversed for a while. And then Free Souffle was already losing its virgin nobility, sagging into a despairing middle age before his very eyes.
0: Oh my God, yes. This whole book is just riddled with sexual assault in a way that they could get away with in the 90s, but you could never get away with now. Even naming the weed that they grow to build everything and make all their food out of, rapine which is... The root word for rape. Well, I think, I thought they were going more with rapacious. Well, that too, but it's, it's the same like root word. Greed. Because rapine means, uh, is a descriptor, and actually is a descriptor in English, meaning something that takes over. So it's got the same root word as rapacious, you're right. But I also think that the other word comes in there
1: too. Uh, the, the souffle highlights that I just read, um, I took more to, you know, to speak characterization of how I didn't think the author was sexualizing the food personally so much as showing us how messed up in the head Freeth is, that he so sexualizes his food. Uh, But I was surprised at the level of sexual peril in this book compared to others that we have read. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm. But it's a much later book as well. Um, And it wasn't written with the constraints of 60s and 70s television network censors. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if Let's always want to ha- ha- wanted to have a companion be more overtly menaced with dismemberment or not.
0: Um, possibly because of all people to have that happen to Sarah Jane Smith. Yeah,
1: yeah. It's There's not stuff. nearly as explicit as it could be, and that it still, in many ways, works for a story that's possibly for younger people, because if you don't know what he's talking about, you're not going to learn it here.
0: That's true. That very much
1: true. the brain, you know, but very much the mind fills in um, what's there. I think we've talked before, Tony, about similar to this, the scene in The Searchers yeah. where oh, the body God. is found and you, you fill in the most horrible things you've ever seen or heard of, but you don't see any of them. Exactly. It's very much that sort of thing where you're not you're not going to learn new horrible nightmares here, but... No. It's, it's a much more overt implication than we've seen previously.
0: And the interesting thing about that is the fact that Sarah is menaced with these things. And on the page, we at least get her internal dialogue, or monologue rather. And we know that she's still being plucky. She's not as terrified of it as she probably should be. Whereas if you listen to those scenes in radio, she is very much the damsel in distress in a way that... Spoiler alert, she will become later in her run on the
1: show. See, I liked that she wasn't.
0: Yeah. So that's
1: disappointing to hear. It is
0: very disappointing because that's her characterization from later. But it's glommed on to, it's photocopied and pasted on to early Sarah Jane Smith. And it just doesn't fit. By the way, I just did find it. Rape, rapacious, rapine, they all come from the same root word. Which is rapere, to snatch, to grab, to carry off in roman law the carrying off of a woman by force with or without intercourse constituted raptus so that's where that word comes from and that's exactly what is implied is going to happen to sarah jane and it's
1: it doesn't still disturbing that's happening to her
0: yeah Uh, it would be disturbing in the doctor's story well
1: it's it's a tonal incongruity with where this is supposed to be inserted so remember i've theorized before, Tony, that you have created Dalton and I as creatures that don't exist in the wild. <laughs> people, who have, people who have read have all these novels all. And read all these novels in order and not seen the episodes and not seen most of the episodes True. when they came out in a very different order.
0: Yeah, well, um, I do decide who lives and dies. Don't
1: I do wonder, <laughs> if Dalton, Dalton, if you and I are the only people who have actually read this novel in this sequence. <laughs> I don't
0: know. I. I have to wonder that myself, because I think that most Doctor Who fans would just skip
1: this. (laughs) Or would have have read it when it came out, or within 10 years of when it came out, 20 years after they had first seen the original stories, or at least 10 years after they'd seen the original stories, depending on when they were watching reruns.
0: It's very much of a piece with the stories that were being published in the 90s. I will say
1: that. But when you're reading through in the alleged continuity, think about how few people actually read them in the order that the writer is thinking of them reading them in. Exactly. And that when you do read them in that order, it's a pretty jarring shift in tone. Suddenly it's SVU, rape world.
0: (laughs) Right. Right. I don't mean to laugh at that. It's yeah. just the shift in tone is that severe.
1: Although and, this would explain, you, you've just teased out why the the painting motif, rape of the Sabines, kept coming up in my mind during this. That was really that's exactly that rapine yeah. yeah. in there and Sabines together. But then I just also kept misreading it as rapini and thinking their was civilization was based on upscale broccoli. <laughs> <laughs> upscale broccoli, just nutritious. <laughs> well, uh, speaking of
0: rapine, rapine and. Tragan, talk about your cookie cutter villains, because Tragan is introduced as being a completely different species than the Paraconians, who apparently are just human. There's nothing different about them. They even have people named Waldo. So fuck that noise, even though his father, his father was named Carpel, and it made me think, oh, did he go into a tunnel and develop a <laughs> syndrome of some sort? Mm. It was just bizarre. And Let's has that problem of the Terry Nation school of nomenclature where he names creatures after what they're supposed to be, but that's part of the joke when you're in Space World, but later on when you get creatures that, I don't know, Tragen comes from a race that is only name-checked twice. We never learn about them except that they have some sort of fluidic skin, which is just disgusting. And... That leads to what I think is one of the absolute worst paragraphs ever written in a Doctor Who book. Are you talking about when he dies? Yes. <laughs> Would you like <laughs> yes. to read that aloud, Dalton? <laughs> from Surely His
2: Face Must yes. Burst? Surely His Face Must Burst. And so it did. Not with a bang, not with an explosion which splattered the walls, but with a juicy burp a whoopee cushioned raspberry a despairing fart which slopped his purple lifeblood onto the bare stone floor still stained with the blood of so many of his victims
0: yeah
1: i come yeah, out it is memorable whether it we is want to remember it or not we oh. will not be able to escape it <laughs> i've used despairing fart
0: so many times in my life since oh. reading it in this book because it's very descriptive, but the problem is you cannot read that sentence without just starting to laugh. And he tries to pull it out at the end with still stained with the blood of so many of his victims. it's like, uh-uh, no. no, you had your chance. You blew it. As soon as you, as soon as <laughs> yeah. you pulled out that whoopee cushion raspberry.
2: Yeah, Yakety Sax is playing in the background. Exactly. It, yeah. I took
1: it as Boris. Look. I can make it a funny death if I want to, because I made him kill a lot of people, so I can make him die horribly.
0: <laughs> yes, but that's not horribly, it's hilariously, and it's not even intentionally hilariously, it's just stupidly.
1: Oh, I thought it was intentionally hilarious, and he was, he was justifying, it's okay for me to make fun of it, because I made him evil. Like, made I,
0: yes, but Jesus Christ, and there's obviously no reason I mean, for it. Yeah,
2: it's, go ahead. It's, it's just another allusion to food.
0: Yeah, it is. It a really burp,
1: is. A burp and a fart.
0: So. A burp and a fart. And a raspberry.
1: Well, the whole yeah. the whole story is about consumption. Yes. Yeah,
2: yeah that's... I, I was kind of quiet when you guys were talking about food, but that's what I was getting out of it, was that it's about... It's, it's gluttony. It's about overconsumption. It's about just the, the, the amount of waste... Yeah. And, and all of that going on.
0: And it's an interesting, that's a very, very interesting theme to try to pull apart in a Doctor Who story. In fact, that's what Doctor Who is for. And during the Let's era, that's what Doctor Who did. It became political very often. In fact, I just met virtually with the Doctor Who meetup group here in Chicago yesterday, or day before rather, to watch the next story. And when Doctor Who got political was the tagline for the meeting. And it's like, yes, that's what a story like this should be doing, but this one does it so poorly.
1: Which doesn't follow through because I kept expecting much more of a payoff with this with the the physical consumption and the uh, the industrial level civilizational consumption. I really expected it to bring him home and he Terrence yeah. dictus over
0: i I think Terrence dicks would have done a much better job novelizing this to be honest but
1: well but he often doesn't bring the story home at the end no well that's more a
0: function of the scripts that he's given but yeah i think you're right that it,
1: it works with what we see sarah jane eating as sort of shorthand for what they're offering because we see her eating toast at home, and then she's so excited they have, like, smoked salmon and some other fancy things at the public relations junket. Asparagus mousse. Yes. Yeah. Yes, which done right can be good, and done wrong is very wrong. But that is what the Pericon Corporation is offering Earth. We have better food, better entertainment, better treats, Mm-hmm. And of course, there's going to be this cost of later it will be earth that will be consumed first, this crop that takes all the nutrients out of the soil and doesn't replace them and is never plowed back under, mm-hmm. replace them. And then it will be the people themselves who won't be harvested directly. They'll yeah. be encouraged to, f- they'll, the social situation will make them fight and then just the bodies will be collected. Yep. But then, yeah, that's not really brought home. Yeah.
0: And it's not just food consumption, it's sexual consumption because we get all those sexual industries.
1: Including
0: the doctor being naked twice.
1: Underpants,
0: Mr. Yes. Pitt.
1: He's wearing underpants. He not is
0: naked. <laughs> in nothing but his the underpants. The doctor is
1: dignified. He is sometimes naked. He is never naked well yeah
0: exactly (laughs) well when he has his fight with the Jägermeister at the very end Pertwee is naked except for his underpants which is I'm sure very arousing to some people Uh, no Uh, and he's naked on the uh, slab and they have a full a
1: full Oh. did not think that was meant to be erotic.
0: <laughs> I don't think it was, but it's kind of disturbing. Mm-hmm. I mean, even minor, even very minor things, very minor word choices, such as in Chapter 13, Freeth says that Sarah should arrive intacta.
1: Yes, that, that one uh, bothered me. I
0: should think so. Yeah, because, yeah, it's very... That word has a very specific meaning and connotation.
1: Did not need to Google that one.
0: Did not need to Google that one. Uh, Those of you at home, go ahead and Google it and then wince, because it's just, yeah, yeah, especially when when we're talking about Sarah Jane Smith being the one that needs to
1: arrive intact. Oh, God. Yeah, I can't believe I'm defending this. But I, I, I really think it was meant to display the vileness not i don't think he i mean he, he understands what he's doing oh yeah he understands what he's writing i don't think he's trying to eroticize it i think he's trying to show the vileness of the villains eroticizing it oh i'm sure yeah the intacta uh, reference kind of made my skin crawl which mm-hmm. i if that was his goal and eh, success That <laughs> the one that bugged me was the disingenuous bosom reference Oh, God. <laughs> We're told that one of the reporters on the, the junket is wearing a somewhat low-cut outfit and that it's a disingenuous bosom, and I contend that it's not really possible for a body part to be disingenuous. This is true. <laughs> it's, not, it's not bothering him.
0: <laughs> well, I wondered how a hand could be well-rounded at the very beginning. Well, but, he's, trying mm.
1: to, he's trying to write her as a modern, more 90s single woman out and about, and I think he really is... Is trying and some of it was actually much fresher than the single girl out and about stuff we've seen with with joe uh because it is more modern than that and even when he misses i feel like he's trying except for that that was the only thing that felt kind of misogynistic yeah
0: there there are many missteps in this book uh, uh, litz does do a few things that are quite good i mean for example he papers over the problem of the doctor having fallen from a great height By having the doctor say much higher, and last Sunday's mutton could easily become next Sunday's lamb, you could be talking to a new version at this very moment. As if saying, if I'd been any higher, I would have died. As it was, I was able to do bone relaxation. It's like, well, that doesn't track, because if you're higher, wouldn't you have more time to relax your bones? I don't know. Anything about
1: the Calvinistic suicide?
0: Oh, Well, let's talk about that. Calvinistic suicide. That's an interesting way of describing it. Why would you call it Calvinistic?
1: A wave of vertigo swept over him. He swallowed and hung on even more firmly. Perhaps he was being too hasty. Even to be banged up for life might be better than what? Other certainties inherited from a long line of chapel goers and largely ignored in latter years now presented themselves with the inevitability of the predestination he'd learned about at Sunday school. What if he weren't one of the elect? What if there were creatures from hell? And then, after he has decided to go ahead and do it, what are you doing, man? Hold on, you'll have us both over. I'm sorry, doctor, he managed to gasp. And then, with a great cry of desolation and despair, Billy Graber surrendered himself to whatever fate his God had decided for him at the beginning of time. Yeah. That is Calvinistic AF.
0: Oh, yeah. As the
1: youth would say. Or
0: sweet FA, as Greber does say. I think that's an improvement on what happens in the radio play, to be honest, because... More of a
1: Baptist death.
0: Well, no, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, to even have... A, a of second- my
1: free will, I fling myself downward.
0: No, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that we have a secondary character who's being forced to kill himself. And he has that moment just before death of thinking about what's coming. That is quite terrifying in a yeah. very, very visceral way, almost literally so. In the radio play, Tragen is controlling even what Greber says, or rather, maybe I, it could be the other way around. Tragen says he stays with him too long, so it could be that Tragen is just mouthing what Greber says, but it sounds like he's actually controlling it. But I think it's even more terrifying here that Greber knows what he's doing and he can't control it. You're right. It's Calvinistic. Oh, that's the other thing. Sweet F.A. <laughs> Grubber says that at one point. I had to look that one up. It actually means sweet Fanny Adams, but that means essentially the same as sweet fuck all. That's
2: what I thought it meant. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. And so this is very much of a piece with other books published in the 1990s, I mean, early Either
1: 1990s. way, you get the spirit of the comment. Either way, whichever way you read it, you get the spirit of it. This is Sweet true. insert
0: here. This is true. And I have to say... One other thing that I think is very important, that the reasons that Sarah Jane gives at the beginning for wanting to see the Doctor again exactly echo the sentiments that she will give him for missing him in School Reunion when she appears in the new series. That being said, that's probably about the only characterization that works for her, and the rest of it is just a lot of... (sighs) It's a lot of tripe to me, but that's just my reading of it. Uh, Just a lot of love worms, because that's another phrase that came up in the uh, (laughs) case of it. Anything else?
1: I found the paragraph that I took as an example of salt and pepper. Grebber was looking for the doctor. Once he'd made up his mind what to do, he'd begun to feel a bit better. Of course, he'd never grasped on anybody before. After all, it wasn't as if he'd always been a plaster angel himself. But it wouldn't be like turning in a mate who'd bought a load of dodgy marble or saved a bit here and there on the architect's specification. These people had got to be stopped. So that's a a lot of cliches, a lot of banter and jauntiness that writing in that sort of jaunty way was fresh and irreverent at the time. But would you throw one of those in a paragraph, not five or six of those? Yeah. So I think he's at his best when he has these sort of unexpected sort of turns and phrase and quips and jokes, one per paragraph, but then he falls into this, look how clever I am tick that yeah. becomes more of a distraction instead of yeah. instead of an entertainment. Yeah,
0: it's not purple prose. It's more like bubblegum pink prose. It's got that light, airy, frothy thing going.
1: Completely legitimate technique, especially for this kind of book, but when he overdoes it, he gets the the opposite of intended effect. Yes,
0: and what drives me nuts is when Let's is good, he's really, really good. Like at the the end of chapter eight, we get the Brigadier thinking about the doctor's death. He allowed himself the luxury of thinking about the doctor and found to his surprise that his prime emotion was anger. Not that he'd been left in the lurch, more that a long established friendship, a friendship of unacknowledged depth had been so unmercifully cut short. The wretched fellow had no need to risk himself. Help had been on its way. It was a foolish, sentimental, unnecessary way to die. I love that. I love that. And then he follows it with, Regenerating might prove a bit difficult with one's tripes taken out. Let's giveth
1: with one hand,
0: taketh with the other, and then takes with the other one too
1: i think he slapped you on the back of the head with the fourth hand maybe yeah
0: I think he may have done.
1: One more thing I wanted to mention. I thought that one of his strengths was describing the experienced reality reality technology.
2: Yes.
1: And I found that always effectively terrifying. Right. You realize what the technology is, so they actually have to stage these events in order to experience them, and that you're not only having the sensory experience, but the emotional experience and the ambitions and the responses and desires that were recorded, and you can't change them, but you don't necessarily want to. Right. Um, I thought that was a terrific description of technology that doesn't exist yet. That probably was going to stick with me from this
0: book. Mm -hmm. And if that had been carried through to its logical conclusion, that an alien race is offering us the ability to experience other lives over and over again, which is, by the way, a direct commentary on soap opera addiction then that would have been interesting and that could have led to a very dark plot but it ended up becoming something very different and then it becomes flying bats <laughs> and yeah my my loathing for the story is just yeah
1: well but in terms of you know differences in the world over the last couple of months, we, many people, not saying I'm referring to myself here, but have been well, binging Netflix, playing through games, et cetera, because the socially responsible thing to do is to stay home and live vicariously through entertainment rather than going out and living because that's the order of the day right now. But that's not oh, usual life. I, I, I did like you know the, the abusing ourselves to death concept of it's not the technology of self it's, it's not so much the technology is rotting your mind argument so much as what are you not going out and experiencing and doing mm-hmm. because you're doing this instead yeah
0: and i'll give the book that it's a lot more timely now probably than it was in 1993 that still doesn't excuse some of the terrible terrible things about it for me anyway Let's do good read, shall we? My dinner's coming and I want to eat it. Speaking of rapine, and shall we describe it? No, no. Will I don't there be think a so.
1: vigorous suck?
0: <laughs> no, but there probably will be a despairing fart at the very end. So just to warn you.
1: Oh sorry, I'm reading here that a more vigorous suck proved fruitless anyway. <laughs>
0: yes. Yeah. Oh God. Okay, as we always do, let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with our own ratings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book or you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a comment, or review by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is 3.15, but it only has four reviews out of 94 ratings and that doesn't even include the reviews written by our goodreads group james barnard gives it two stars and says no one is going to claim this is a forgotten classic However, in 1993, it was just nice to have a new Doctor Who story broadcast on the BBC, and this one's pedigree is impeccable. And yet, even though I know I'd heard John Pertwee, Liz Sladen, and Nicholas Courtney speaking the lines better, Let's Gives them, they still don't feel quite right. Then there's the amount of time Let's Gives his own, excessively irritating creation, Jeremy Fitz Oliver. I'm sure he was designed to provide a bit of light relief, which would have been fine in a dark, heavy, soul-searching piece. But in a light frothy story like this, it's really not necessary. The other new characters are fine as broad caricatures, but Let's doesn't take the opportunity to flesh them out. That's something of a shame, really. At least the book is palatable, something which I can't say about its follow-up, The Ghosts of Endspace, and the faults don't detract from it too much. This isn't a classic, but its heart is in the right place which, of course, makes me want to be snarky and say yes, but his brain isn't. James Bowman also gives it two stars and says, not the best Doctor Who story. Yeah, that's an understatement. The dialogue and characterization are fairly good, especially with the third Doctor and the rest of the main cast. However, the plot keeps wandering off on tangents with way too much focus on a rogue scientist and her jungle rebels, in later parts, until it hits a brick wall at the end and resolves things all too easily. If they'd kept the plot on one course, it would have been much better. Oh, and new companion Jeremy Fitzoliver doesn't start off so bad, but is really pretty annoying in the end. The quote-unquote funnier he gets, the worse he is. C plus. He actually gave it a letter grade. In our own Goodreads group, T.E. Otten says, I don't think I ever read this. It was something I meant to pick up and never got around to. I enjoyed the radio play and Ghosts of Space. What I do remember, however, is that for a little while, there were occasional periods with this Space downtime and shakedown where novelizations were being released fairly hot on the heels of the VHS or audio tapes, rekindling some of the excitement of Target books following on the heels of adventures towards the end of the run. That is true. And finally, Michael gives it two stars and says, during the wilderness years, that's how we refer to the 90s, Eddie knew who was like a drop of rain in the desert. I traded for a copy of this on cassette tape from a UK fan, and I'll admit that part of me loved it. The first episode was amazing, and while the voices of our leads had aged a bit, boy howdy, and that first episode pertly sounds like a grandmother, it was still a delight to hear them. Once you get past episode one, it's a bit of diminishing returns type of story. Sure, there are some fun things you'd never see on the TV budget of the day, but overall I felt like the story ran out of gas by the midpoint and never really recovered. And yet I still picked up the adaptation of the story, and despite multiple attempts to read it, I could never quite slog my way through it. Boy, howdy. I have to admit, everybody, I almost didn't finish this one, and that's the only time I've ever felt compelled. Not to finish one of these books, but that's okay. Don't out of five stars, what would you give this?
2: I'm gonna go with a three. The story itself, the writing, and everything is well enough. You know, it's not horrible writing, but the plot, like like one of the other reviewers said, is just kind of a runaway train. It doesn't really know what it's going for um so yeah the writing itself the prose it's it's all well and good but the the story and the plot is just blah so yeah i'd say about a three
1: okay and allison what number would shock you the most (laughs) well i already know it's gonna be high for you So, well, but, so would so with a low number, be a lower number, be a shock, or would a high number be a shock?
0: I don't know what would be a shock anymore, to be honest. But you tell me.
1: I'm gonna go to 2.75. Wow. In my mind, it's been both much higher and much lower. Yep, it has. Um, I I am a sucker actually for this particular style of bros. Um, so even when he, even though he overdid it, I actually found it a lot of fun. Uh, you know, the, the quick read, the beach book all of, our, all of our favorite labels. The quick read, it was a fun read, yes. Yeah. Quick tags, yes. One of the reasons I was so frustrated at this, by the story is because I was interested in where it was going. And there have been more competently executed books with lower ambitions.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's, it's a, in many ways a wonderful mess, I thought. Okay. And I went back and forth between more wonderful and more mess, and I think two point seven five is sort of takes both into account.
0: That sounds reasonable to me. Mm-hmm. I'm probably gonna well, this won't come as a shock at all. I give this a one point five for many of the reasons I already gave, of course, but the biggest reason is this. We are evaluating novelizations on this podcast. And as I've said before, and I'll say it again, a good novelization is one that cleaves to the story. And adds something to it and makes you feel like you are revisiting the story. A great novelization gives it a depth and a vibrancy that the original story just didn't have. I mean, Donald Cotton, for instance. Ian Martyr, David Whitaker. Terrence Dix when he's caring about it. Malcolm Hulk every single time, even when he's not doing all that great. This one, the additions actually subtract from the story that the radio play at least by virtue of being on audio is pretty nice and streamlined here lets us throw in everything including the kitchen sink which is probably made of rapine because everything else is
1: apparently it's delicious Mm though
0: yeah i guess so if it can make everything that's perfectly fine and that kind of makes sense too because if it's eating every bit of Nutrient out of the soil, then of course it should be able to replicate every kind of
1: nutrient. They need to uh, plant beans, <laughs> plow, them, plow them under. Or
0: soy, because that was a big thing in 1974, I guess. I don't know. But yeah, this one, everything that lets adds to it detracts from the story. We get a lessened Sarah Jane Smith. We get errors in the plot. We get continuity references that are completely wrong. We get Jeremy fucking Fitz Oliver,
1: <laughs> and we get whom does st- Jeremy fuck? <laughs> yeah, well, whoever he does fuck, oh God,
0: <laughs> hopefully he doesn't reproduce. That character actually gets used in two original not, uh, novels from the nineties. So if we ever go on to read the novels from the nineties, God help us, because we will see that character again. Yeah, all of this combined, I give it a one point five. Sorry to the ghost of Barry Lutz, but yeah, sorry. So, thank you guys. Mm -hmm. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time, especially this time. Next time, we go back to 1974 and Sarah Jane's actual second story with the Doctor, as well as our last ever Malcolm Hulk novel. And to help us see him off, we'll be joined by none other than Trey Porte. Trey! Yes. So join us on June 14th as we discuss The Dinosaur Invasion, which of course is an adaptation of Invasion of the Dinosaurs. Go figure. In the meantime... If you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Dr. Who Target Book Club Podcast, all word with those spaces like a crazy person. Also feel free to follow us on Twitter, we're at DWTargetPC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at emperordalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it accidentally. Our theme by Aaron S. is available on his YouTube channel at tinyurl.com forward slash Y32B8F55, along with many, many others. Give him a follow and a thumbs up. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye, Bye, y'all. And we're out. Oh, deep hurting. Deep hurting.
1: Okay. I'm really sorry for what you suffered, Tony. I, no. It never occurred to me that it was doing such psychic violence to you.
0: I hate this book with a passion. I really do. I am so looking forward to the palate cleanser that is going to be Malcolm Hulk, believe me. <laughs> and to the palate cleanser that just got delivered to my door. So I'm going to stop the recording
1: now.